Joy to be with you, and I hope I have some voice left after singing. Man, oh man, I can just not sing when we sing. So uh, it's just a joy to lift our voices and declare truth, isn't it? Uh, I do want to tell those of you that may not have heard that one of our dear sisters, Connie Hoagland, who was uh, our nursery director for quite a few years, uh, went on to be with the Lord on Friday morning early. She had been battling cancer for some years, and so while it's a great relief for her, uh, she leaves Doug as well as uh, children and grandchildren. So why don't we just take a moment and uh, pray for the family that's left. Uh, Connie was such an influential person. You've never uh, really enjoyed staff meetings until you sat next to Connie and enjoyed her slugging on you periodically when she got excited or thought you said something stupid. Um, so uh, just a great influence on so many people. So let's pray for the family, though, for a minute here. Father, we do thank you for the life of Connie. We thank you that the, the race that you put before her, the life that you called her to, uh, affected so many of us right here at Calvary. And uh, just think of the years where Moms and dads would walk into a nursery and entrust their most uh, precious possession of a child into her care. And I think of how often we did that with our own children and how competent and how godly the care was. Um, so I just bless you and thank you for that. And thank you for her continued faithfulness even as they moved to Texas. And um, thank you for even just... Uh, Oh, well, not too long ago when they passed through here, and she knew that her time was limited, of her simple trust in you, knowing that cancer and sin would not have the final say in her life, but you would. So we thank you for that hope. Lord, we pray for Doug, and we pray for the families as they sorrow. We're so grateful that while they grieve, they grieve with a hope of being able to spend eternity together. Would you comfort, would you encourage, would you help them to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the labor of the Lord, knowing that it is that labor that adds up now and forevermore. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray, amen, amen. All right, well, grab uh, something that you can find Philippians uh, chapter 2 on, Philippians chapter 2, and we want to kind of jump in and continue on with this letter that was written from the Apostle Paul to the believers in uh, a Roman colony called Philippi, pretty established city, uh, a very reputable Roman city of its day. And uh, we're jumping in uh, to, to really, we want to focus on verses 19 through 30 this morning, and look at this whole idea of what does it mean uh, to, to practice, to live as uh, a spiritual parent. And I use the word practice uh, probably for the same reason that medical doctors call what they do practicing medicine. You never get it perfect, but you stay at it. And so what are some practices of spiritual parenting? Now, uh, let me just uh, uh, remind ourselves of some of the things that we've said to get us to this point in this letter. And if you're jumping in for the first time this morning, uh, to just bring you up to speed a little bit on where we're at. And I thought a good a analogy for this, or a good illustration uh, for what God is up to in our life is taking place right at the back of our parking lot here in a house back there that somebody just recently bought, and they reduced it to this. And so if you look over our back fence, the whole house got bulldozed. That was fun to watch, by the way. Uh, there was a bunch of people on the wall, and when he knocked down the final wall, everybody started clapping. But you'll notice they left one wall because in California, this is called a remodel. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought, this is just a good picture of what it means to become a Christian. Um, you know, you, you've built a life of your own passions and desires and values, and, uh, and you've just done all of that. And then all of a sudden, God purchases you, right? And you become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, thankfully, He doesn't quite do it this abruptly. Otherwise, we'd all give up. But He does leave something standing, doesn't He? We keep the same old body till later. We'll get the new body later on. 
But he gives a new heart and he begins to build a whole new set of values, a whole new set of desires, and a whole new ability to do things that comes from him. And that's what verses 12 and 13 talk about in this chapter, that it is God who begins a work in an individual both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who comes into a life and realizes the way that we have built our lives. And the longer we lived as non-Christians, the more there is that has to be changed. And, And he comes in and he begins to give us a different will. He gives us different desires. He gives us different passions And he gives us the power and the ability to live out those desires, to live out those passions. Because, as he describes in verses 3 and 4, we are by nature selfish people. By nature, we want to get the glory. By nature, we do things looking out for our own interests more than the interests of other people. Right? Is that true? That's true. Man, that's painfully true, isn't it? And, and so he has to come in and do a work like this. By the way, it's nice seeing a big picture up there, isn't it? No, now we'll see big mistakes when I spell a word wrong. <laughs> and so he comes in, and, he, and this is what he does. And what's our responsibility? Our responsibility is to not grumble about what he's doing and not argue with him about it. That's the command in the next verse, right? Knock off the grumbling and and quit the arguing with him. Rather, just obey him because he is working in us as it pleases him, and what pleases him is best for us and best for the people around us. And so he goes on and says, what this new structure, what this new desires, what this new life looks like is verse 15, so that you will show yourself or you will become or you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God. That's what we are the moment we become. And he moves us into being more blameless and innocent above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life. And so that's part of this new structure that he begins in our lives. And so we've looked at that a couple weeks ago, hit on it a little bit last week. But another thing that he does in a life, and Paul is an example of this, as are the two men that we'll mention at the end of the chapter here, another thing that he does in a person's life is he causes them to have a desire to be a spiritual parent. He gives them a passion to be a spiritual parent, and because we're all incompetent to do that, he gives us the ability to do that as well. That's part of what he does when he builds a new life, because that's his desire. That's what pleases him, that that other people would come to know him and would grow spiritually. And so that's the emphasis that we're looking at today. So we summed this up last week by saying Paul was a proud, joyful, responsible spiritual parent. And we pull this out of verses 16 and 17 Um, and 18, but 16 and 17 especially. And remember, we said that by proud, what we meant was that was Paul's desire. Paul's desire was, I want my efforts in helping you grow spiritually to cause me to be proud when we see Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse 16 there. He says, one day I'm going to stand before Jesus. I want my spiritual buttons to burst because as, first of all, you're there. You've come to know Christ as your Savior. And secondly, I contributed to your spiritual growth. I was a spiritual parent to you. Paul's passion was on that day, he could say, yay, God, thanks be to you for what you allowed me to be in these people's lives. That was a passion that drove his life. And he wants it to be a passion that drives our lives. 
as well. And so this is the desire. This is the passion. This is the will and how God changes our will. So we do not live just for our own interests. We live for the interest of other people. And we parent them spiritually along this path. He wanted to be a proud spiritual parent one day. Secondly, he wanted to rejoice. He wanted to be a joyful spiritual parent. Not always easy, right? Say right. Some of you lost sleep last night because your parents. Okay? But that's what he says in verse 17. Even if I spend myself and die helping you spiritually, I rejoice for my part in your lives and I share my joy with you all. And he uses this metaphor that comes out of the sacrificial pagan sacrifices. It's also found some in the Old Testament, but it was probably more coming out of the pagan sacrifices, where when an offering was offered to a pagan deity, a a wine uh, drink offering was poured out. And and the way he puts it there in verse 17, he, he said, you are the sacrifice and service of your faith. In other words, nobody can substitute for your sacrifice to God and your service to God and to serve other people. Nobody can make that up for you. But I'm the one who gets to be the drink offering to accompany that to make it more of a sweet aroma to you, and I count that joy. This is the attitude that you are to spiritual parent as. This is the attitude that we're to have. God, you allow me to have influence on other people coming to know you and helping them grow. This is the most crazy thing in the world. And it lasts for all of eternity. Not so. This is a great joy. And he says, and I share my joy with you as well. I don't grumble. I share my joy. I rejoice with you. Well, not only was he joyful, but he was a responsible parent. I will be responsible by giving you the spiritual parenting you need and getting others to help when I cannot provide it. And uh, if you'll remember, Paul ended up in the city of Philippi, and uh, because God had just called him to bring the gospel to other people, he'd called him to bring and be a spiritual parent to help people be born into God's family and to help them grow. He came into Philippi. He found out about some ladies that were worshipers of God and how they met on a on a particular morning to pray. He showed up at that meeting. They'd never heard about Jesus. He tells them about Jesus. Lydia was the leader of that. She accepts Christ. She's baptized along with her household. And his spiritual parenting began and moved into a whole new phase there. And uh, as he's living with Lydia and her household, and he's continuing to serve there in Philippi, there's this particular girl there that's a slave, and she is demon-possessed, and that meant that she could divine and tell things about people's lives, maybe even about the future. She happened to be the best advertisement that Paul had in all of town, because she kept saying to everybody, these men are bond slaves of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. I mean, she was saying it more clearly than most people would believe it. But Paul got irritated with this one day, and he said enough of that, and so he freed her, used the authority of the Lord, and freed her from this demon possession. Uh, That's, you know, just part of what God called him to do and being a spiritual parent there. The problem was, while that was a really good deal for her, her owners lost their source of profit, and they did not like that. And so they dragged Paul and Silas before the authorities. They beat them severely. They turned them over to the jailer. He puts them into prison. And as they are in the stocks in the innermost prison, they're grumbling, saying, God, what is up with this? We're trying to serve you, and this is where it gets us? Is that true? Say, no, that's not true. What were they doing? Singing and praising God. Man, that's what it means to be a spiritual parent. You're always parenting. And so they're singing and praising God. 
God causes an earthquake, the natural inclination when the, 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 you know, the doors are off and you can walk out is to walk out, right? Uh, the Roman uh, jailer assumed that that would, would be what happened. He gets ready to take his own life because that would be the penalty for him losing charge of prisoners. And uh, Paul cries out, we're all here. He says, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you and all your household will be saved. They do. Man, he became a spiritual parent of now the Philippian jailer and all of his household. What's my point? He's a responsible spiritual parent in Philippi. Now he's in prison. This relationship had continued on. In fact, jump over to the very end of the book of Philippians and and let's catch this quick summary of their relationship, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 4. He says, You yourself also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, that, that was the region that Philippi was in, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica... You sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God." And so this relationship had continued, and as Paul is sitting in Rome under house arrest, uh, chained to a Roman soldier, they send Epaphroditus with another financial gift, as well as a gift to just be present with the Apostle Paul. And, And so in verses 19 down through verse 30, Paul now, as a spiritual parent of the Philippians, Uh, realizes that he needs to do something for them that he cannot do in person. And so he says these three things. He says, I hope to send Timothy to you. I can't come. If I can, I trust the Lord I may be able to come shortly, but I'll send Timothy to you. And since I'm not too sure whether Timothy can go right now. I thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus back to you. So what's the point of that? Spiritual parents, when they cannot personally parent, they get the right people who can. That's just part of their responsibility. They can't do everything. They shouldn't do everything. But they do have a sense of responsibility to make sure that other people get it. Now, we're going to come back and pick up on this in a moment, but let's just read through verses 19 through 30, and I want you to notice the spiritual parenting because what we're going to see is Paul's not only a spiritual parent of the Philippian believers, he's a spiritual parent to Timothy, and he's a spiritual parent to Epaphroditus. Now, he's not an equal spiritual parent to everybody, and sometimes this drives us crazy in a world where we think everything has to be fair. He wasn't an equal spiritual parent to all of them. Jesus wasn't an equal discipler of all of his disciples. He discipled three of them more than the rest. That's okay. Because Jesus did it, right? And, and even with those of us that are parents with our own children, you know, we parent each child somewhat differently, don't we? To get them to the same place. And there's times where one of them needs a lot of energy and the other ones are sailing along. And there's times where it switches. And, and so I think we're going to see that. And just listen to the terms here of, of how this shows the spiritual parenting of the Apostle Paul to all three. Well, two individuals and the group of the Philippians believers. Let's begin in verse 19. He says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. 
But you know of this proven worth that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Well, may God bless those words of the living God to us. Let me just walk through some of the things in this passage here and just notice some of the dynamics that are going on here. Um, when you read through a passage like this, it's, it's somewhat like a weaving, and there's so many things kind of going all together here that it's a little hard to sort it out. But let's just walk down through this and look at some of the different dynamics here. First of all, with Timothy. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. One of the characteristics of a spiritual parent is they want to know the condition of their children. If they're doing well, hallelujah, how do we pour gasoline of the grace of God upon their lives so they'll continue to grow even more? If they're not doing well, how do we bring the grace of encouragement or correction or rebuke or whatever to get them back on the right path? But a true parent wants to know the condition of their, of their kids, whether they're doing good or bad, because there's a sense of responsibility involved in that, right? You don't want to stick your head in the sand when something's going on. And so he sends Timothy... He says he'd like to send Timothy so that he could be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Encouraged doesn't necessarily mean that their condition's all going to be good. He just finds encouragement about knowing what's going on with them. And so he wants to do that with them. And he describes Timothy in verse 20 as one of kindred spirit. Isn't that a great term? Uh, he, he's saying... Timothy has a heart for you as I have a heart for you. And Timothy was there on that trip when they came through Philippi, and all that stuff happened. And that's how God wrote the Philippians upon Timothy's heart. He will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. But, but why, why would Timothy have a kindred heart to the Paul? Why would he be genuinely concerned for their welfare? The next verse is the key. For they all, others, seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. See, what God had done in Timothy's life is what he had done in the apostles Paul's life, so that when they saw other people, they were concerned about the interest of Jesus Christ in those people. That's what their desire was. Isn't that why Paul appealed to the work of Christ earlier in this chapter? Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who didn't think about his own interests, but held everything loosely to think about your interest, and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He says, God has rebuilt Timothy, even as he has rebuilt me. And of course, part of the reason Timothy had grown like that, because Paul was a spiritual parent to Timothy. He was concerned about the interest of Christ Jesus. And he says, you know of their proven worth, you know of his proven worth, verse 22, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. And we know that he was very much a spiritual son to Paul. Paul did not have a Christian father. 
Man, he had one godly mother and one godly grandmother who taught him the scriptures from childhood, we're told. But it was Paul who became the spiritual father to Timothy and helped build his life with these desires of Christ in the power of Christ. He concludes this by saying about Timothy, he says, therefore I hope to send him immediately. And then there's this little phrase, as soon as I see how things go with me. This to me is just a typical parenting phrase right here. Because once you spiritually disciple somebody to where they're really useful, then you don't want them to leave, right? I mean, Kamala and I say this all the time. You you just do everything for years to make them useful. Then they get useful. Then they leave. Now, thankfully, they come back. When they come back, they're really contributors to the whole deal. And it's important to remember that's what I did to my mom and dad, too. So, you know, this isn't the first time that it happened. Um, But that's part of what Paul's saying, because when you have spiritually parented somebody like Timothy and they've grown, there's such a mutual benefit that comes back to you, isn't there? There's such a benefit that they bring to you. And, And we have no idea what the circumstances are here of what's going on. But Paul well understood if he sent Timothy, that was going to leave him lacking Timothy. And there is that tension that comes in when you have spiritually parented somebody and they have matured to this point. Well, let's move on to Epaphroditus in verse 25. He says, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. And uh, he's the one who would have uh, been sent by the Philippians, as we can see here uh, in these verses. And Paul says, I'm going to send him back. Notice how Paul describes Epaphroditus' relationship to himself. He says, my brother, in other words, they have a common spiritual father, my fellow worker, I mean, he's a laborer. He has put his hands to the plow. We are working the field of God together, a field that's ripe unto harvest. He's not one who's afraid to labor for the cause of Christ. He's my fellow laborer and my fellow what? Soldier. A fellow soldier. He understands that the spiritual walk with Christ is a spiritual battle, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but of, of Satan and demonic things in heavenly places. People are not the enemy. It's Satan and, and all of that stuff is, that's the enemy, like that girl who was demon-possessed in Philippi. They understood this with great clarity. And, and Epaphroditus had learned to fight the spiritual battles with the spiritual armor. And so he was a fellow soldier in this battle. Notice how he describes his relationship to the Philippian church. Your messenger and a minister to my need. The word messenger is actually the word apostle. He is one that you sent to me. And why did you send him to me? To minister to my need. And the word is used of a priest, actually. You sent him to help me in my circumstances. And so he has come. Now, it turns in verse 26 and says, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Epaphroditus evidently had a sense that he needed to get back to Philippi because they had heard that he was sick. And it's a little bit hard to know why he felt such an urgency to give back. We can speculate. It's possible that when they found out that he was sick, they hadn't heard that he'd been healed, as Paul tells us about here. And so there's still a huge concern that he is still sick and that he might die. It's also possible that some of the people at Philippi thought that... uh, Epaphroditus had kind of flaked out on the mission for which they had sent him. Uh, That maybe he's not as bad as he thinks he is. Um, There's some indication here by the way Paul tells them how to receive him. 
that they may have been somewhat skeptical of Epaphroditus and what had happened to him. Um, but either way, Epaphroditus wants to get back and, and uh, fill in his brothers and sisters in the church at Philippi about what was going on because he was sick. What do we know about this sickness? Well, we know that he was sick to the point of death. The Greek word literally means he was a neighbor with death. Death was knocking at his door. It was his next door neighbor. And there was no telling which way it might go. We also know that this sickness was a result of his work in Christ. Look at verse 30. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ. And so we know that it was part of his following of Christ that brought him into this sickness and took it even to the point of death. The third thing we know is also there in verse 30, and that is that the particular work of Christ was that he risked his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. What would that be? It was the fact that Epaphroditus was sent from Philippi to make this long trip to Rome. Somewhere in there, he got sick, and he may very well have said, this is what God's called me to. I am not stopping. And Paul writes back to the Philippians saying, you need to know that Epaphroditus got this sick, and he was to the point of death because he was making up what was deficient in your service to me. What was the only thing that was deficient in their service to Paul? Not being physically present. They just were not physically present. Now, no doubt he brought a financial gift as well. And so Paul makes it very clear that this sickness was a result of Epaphroditus following Jesus and being sent out by the Philippian church to meet Paul and to to help lessen his uh, needs and burdens that he was living under. But he got sick, and rather than lessening the burdens, he actually created more burdens for the Apostle Paul. How do we know that? Because Paul says, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Epaphroditus' sickness brought sorrow to Paul. Isn't that what happens in a parent's life when a child's sick? It's a grief. It's a sorrow. And man, if they get to the point of being at death's door, that is a huge sorrow, is it not? And God, uh, Paul says, I just want you to know that, man, God just had mercy, and not just on Epaphroditus, but on me too. Because if he had died, it would have added sorrow to sorrow. And so we see that Epaphroditus had risked a lot, and, and he's probably raised here also following the example of Christ, because what did Christ do? Christ just didn't become a neighbor of death. He died. Why? Looking out for our interest. Doing for us what we could not do in being crucified for us. And the Apostle Paul is saying, Epaphroditus had the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, verse 29, when he comes back, receive him then in the Lord with all joy. He's basically, seems like he's parenting the church now and saying, I don't know what you're thinking about what happened to Epaphroditus. I just want you to know that he was serving the Lord. He was being faithful to what you called him to do. He was trying to minister to my needs and you receive him with joy. Do not grumble. Do not complain. Receive him with joy. And then he makes a broader application. And hold men, we can include women in there just as well, hold men and women like him in what? High regard. Because that's the very mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you see how Paul has uh, parented Timothy, and now he's going to use Timothy to parent the Philippian believers' church? 
You see how he's parented Epaphroditus when he shows up in Rome and how um, he's going to use Epaphroditus to parent the uh, Philippian church. And you see how he's parenting the Philippian church? He's just approaching this whole thing very much as a spiritual parent. Now, two things before we look at just some uh, three applications here for us. One is spiritual parents see, see themselves with their children, spiritual children, as equal before God. They see themselves as equal before God. Notice how Paul describes Timothy, one of a kindred heart with me. Notice how he describes Epaphroditus, a brother, a fellow worker, a fellow messenger. And so spiritual parents understand that in Christ they are the same. And in fact, about the Philippians, he says back in chapter 1, he says we are fellow uh, partakers of the gospel and participants in getting the gospel out. And so spiritual parents understand that before the Lord we're equal. Before the Lord we're exactly equal. And yet uh, we're a little further down the road to where we have something to offer. We have something to help you to know what it means to obey the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that He teaches And so we will help you step up to that, and we'll help you step up to that in very practical ways, as is uh, the example here in the book of Philippians. So let's look at some of these principles of being a a spiritual parent. The first one I would suggest, he's on the back of your notes if you're taking notes, is that we need to prioritize so we, you, can be proud. I think this is the hardest thing of living on in such a comfortable place with so many good things to do. But we have to prioritize so that we can be proud. We have to understand that one day we will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, thankfully, we get our chance to bow our knees and with our tongues confess Jesus as His Lord but we will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day, and, and He has a desire to give out rewards, the, the Bema seat, the, the gold and the silver and the precious stones. He has a desire to do that. And, and the judgment is not primarily, I mean, it, it's there, but it's, Paul's making a point here that when we stand before Jesus, it's not how morally we've lived. Morally is kind of first base. Beyond that is how have we helped other people? What has our contribution been to other people? Now, certainly we can't help other people if we're stuck in, in just besetting sins. I mean, that's granted. But somehow I think we often think when I stand before Jesus, it'll just be I'm morally pure. Well, first of all, we're not, right? And thankfully, that's where we stand in the righteousness of Christ. When we stand before the Lord Jesus, God wants us to be proud about the people that we, He used us to help know about Him and believe in Him and grow in Him. He wants that. That's what pleases Him. But we have to fight this battle to keep prioritizing in light of that day. And it is a constant battle. I'm sure it is for you. I know it is for me. And so, we just have to keep prioritizing our role as spiritual parents into people who do not yet know Christ and into the people's lives who do know Christ. It has to be a priority. As it was for the Apostle Paul, as it was for Timothy, as it was for Epaphroditus. The second thing is, is we need to rejoice that God gives us this opportunity. You need to rejoice that God gives you this opportunity. I mean, this is just nuts, isn't it? It's just so crazy that God would entrust to us and give us the opportunity to help people come to know Him and to grow in Him and to experience eternal benefits from that. Isn't that crazy? I mean, if I was God, I would not have entrusted this to people like me. 
I, I, but he has. And we need to rejoice that God gives us this opportunity. Why is that important? Because this is fraught with hurt feelings and frustrations and using your resources of time and money and everything else. And somehow you got to keep the big picture in mind of standing before Jesus one day. And you got to keep saying, yes, God gives me this chance. Yes, God gives me this chance. It's amazing that He has given me this opportunity. And thirdly, just stay responsible in the challenges. Stay responsible in the challenges. There will be hundreds of challenges that come up, and sometimes that's just in one day. I mean, for those of you that have parented and those of you that haven't parented, you know this from the kids that are around you. There are all kinds of challenges. And it's really easy to give advice. It's really hard to be a spiritual parent. And so we just have to stay responsible in the challenges. That means that we need to do what we can. Where we're further ahead of somebody, we help them. When, when they're bumping into something or something is going on in their life that is not a competency for us and we don't even exactly know what to do, then we help them get the help. And thankfully, we're not alone in this. But it is our job and it is our responsibility to make sure that they're getting the help they need. So, for example, we offer several classes here at Calvary on Sunday mornings to, 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 to just help each of us in this. A um, couple times a year, we offer a foundations class. This is really just spiritual growth 101. How does a person learn to spiritually feed themselves? Uh, we offer a six-week class on that, of how do they own responsibility for their spiritual life and grow in that. So if you're saying, I don't know how I would help someone do that. Just go to that class with them. The other class that follows that right up is, how do I pass this on to others? That's the Spiritual Parenting 101. I jumped in there this morning with Eric, and man, just a neat group of people. But how do I pass this on? Using the one-to-one discipleship is what we're using Uh, What does it mean to be a part of a church? That's our membership class. How has God made me to have a unique particular part in the local body? That's our shape class. So you don't have to figure all this out. You can take advantage of some things that we have in place that that help, help in this process, but it is our responsibility to help other people do this. And so stay responsible in all of the midst of the challenges. Again, it's just so much like parenting. We wanted our children to have some musical abilities. Well, everybody in our family knew it wasn't going to come from me. (laughs) A lot of it could come from Camilla. So what did we do? We made sure they had teachers that could help them. We wanted our kids to know classical literature. I never learned classical literature, neither did Camilla. What did we do? We paid for someone to teach them the classics. That's all the spiritual parenting does. Where where you're good at something and where you have an ability, you help them, where you think you bump into something, you get them someplace where they can get the parenting they need. That's what this means. And so, for example, last Sunday I concluded by saying, middle schoolers, you can be spiritual parents. I meant that. Because you are further along spiritually than some of the people you're sitting in class with. Is that true? That's true. Now, you may need to pass off and get some help sooner than someone who's known Christ for 10 years. 
but you can do what you can do, and then you can say, Mom, help. Dad, help. Or an older brother and sister, or these classes. But man, I think, I mean, what would it do to the church if all of our middle schoolers started spiritual parenting now and they spiritually parented for the rest of their lives? Where would the church be in another 50 years? That's what the church is supposed to be, is just a bunch of spiritual parents doing this all the time. And I want to say to us, we can't play this one safe. You cannot play it safe. We need to be wise. We need to be faithful. But we cannot play it safe. Spiritual parenting will cost you more than anything you choose to do, and it will also have the greatest rewards. So one of the great questions is who? Who should I spiritually parent? I think we need to know the names of the people we're parenting. I don't think it's helpful to just say, well, I'm just spiritually parenting people as I bump into them. Oh, that's a no-risk parenting model. Now, the reality is, if you are spiritually parenting some, when you bump into people, you will provide good spiritual parenting. But you can become a real expert on spiritual parenting if you're not personally committed to spiritually parenting one, three, four, five people, right? It's, again, uh, Camilla and I have said for years, everybody who wrote a parenting book just quit having kids. As soon as you quit having kids, you become an expert. But when you stay in the midst of it, you never forget, man, this is hard. This is hard. And uh, there's a sense of humility that comes when you're in the midst of it. And so, who? Now, many of you do this really well, and I'm just I'm humbled by so many of you that have picked up and, and have spiritually parented people, sometimes older than you at the end of their life, um, sometimes newer believers. So, But for those of you that just say, I don't know who. I don't know who I should be spiritually parenting. Well, the most obvious thing is if you still have children in your home, that's your primary spiritual parenting. If you've got grandkids, certainly, that's a... That's, that's, that's part of the who. I would encourage you that you need to go beyond that, though. And so, how do you figure out the who? Well, uh, this is going to be novel. Pray. Pray. Cultivate the desire to be a spiritual parent through prayer. And just cultivate that and just say, God... Man, you have done an amazing work in my life. You ripped it down, you left this body standing, and you have rebuilt me. And as part of rebuilding, you've given me this desire to be a spiritual parent. I know I'm not competent at this. I know I'm a spastic at this. But it's just a desire you've given me, and you've promised to give me the ability with it. Who should I spiritually parent? So you just pray. And here's three things. Let's just go through them in order. Look around at the people already in your life. Look around at the people that are, you know, your kids are playing soccer with. Look around at some of the parents at where you're going to school. Look around at the neighbors that are around you. Look around at the people that you're working with. The problem is we often know them too well. Well, they just need Jesus, right? So just look around at the people in your life. This is this whole point to the 8 to 15, believing that God sovereignly and strategically puts people in our orbits for us to spiritually parent, for us to have a spiritual role in their life. And so just look at the people that are already around you and in your life. And then ask them. This is novel, I know. Ask them. Just say, you know, just bring up the gospel. Ask them where they stand with Jesus. Your, your social connections and your friendship with them is not going to help them. Ask them, are you interested in knowing and growing more in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or whatever, however you're going to phrase that based upon where they're at. Do you even know who God is? Just ask spiritual questions. 
And if a person says, I'm not interested, what do we know then? We know that that's not someone the Spirit's working on right then. That's what we know, right? Jesus told uh, John, uh, we just went through this in our life group this week, that we don't know where the Spirit's coming from, we don't know where He's going, but we see the effects right then, right? So if you ask somebody and they say no, we know not to expend any more energy there right now. If they say no, then you simply say, that's fine, I'm not going to pursue you anymore, don't expect me to ask this again. If you're ever interested, you come ask me. I think that's the equivalent of shaking the dust off our, off our feet. Just say, I'm not pursuing you anymore. If you're interested, you come talk to me. If they're a Christian, you can have the same things. Uh, would you like us, me to help you spiritually grow? And if they say yes, great. If they say no, don't take it personally. I mean, maybe they want to spiritually grow. You're just not the right person. There's a lot of possibilities here, right? But just ask. Just have a conversation. Put the, put the cards on the table. And then have some kind of a plan. Now, now, hold it pretty openly, but here's the two dynamics that should be to the plan. You should know what you're committing to, and they should know what they're committing to. And they need to have some skin in this game, otherwise they're never going to grow. And so it might simply be, let's meet once a week, and we're going to go through the one-to-one discipleship. My responsibility is to meet with you and to pray for you and to go through that material with you. Your responsibility is to answer the questions in the book. So have some kind of a plan. And then all kinds of stuff will pop up out of that. Uh, wrestling with sin issues, wrestling with relational issues, and that just becomes a part of the conversation. Now, part of the reason to have a plan is if you're committing and being faithful to your time and they never have time to do their assignments, then they really don't want to grow. And that's when you say, you know, this is just not working right now, Let's just forget it because this is not a good stewardship of my time and effort with you. If you ever want to pick this up, you approach me. You approach me. Um, Because a lot of people will say, yes, I want to spiritually grow, but then they don't want to put the effort into actually growing. They don't want to put the effort into obeying Jesus. They don't want to put the effort into working out what God is working in. And if they don't want to, we can't help them but we can make it clear to them that if they ever want to, we're there to help. And so just have some kind of a plan and keep it really, really open about how it goes because it changes. I mean, you may end up in prison like Paul, and your parenting model may have to change a little. Um, but, But it should have both the elements of what am I committing to, what am I expecting them to commit to, and, uh, and, and so, so be ready for your heart to be broken. It will be. It will be. Be prepared for people to walk away from you and to mock you and ridicule you. They will. Be prepared for what, people to throw away their life with both hands and you not to be able to do a thing about it. Because it will. But also be prepared for some Lydia's in your life, and some Timothy's, and some Epaphroditus's. And so in all of this, just make sure that you keep the day of Christ primary, of having a desire to stand there in glory in what God allowed you to be a part of by helping other people get there. Let me just give you a a personal example from this. Uh, There were two brothers that God put in our orbit through a boys' chorus that our boys were a part of. And uh, interestingly, uh, one of them came to me pretty early on. He wanted to get married. Uh, As we began to meet together, it was obvious that he wasn't a Christian, his fiance was. Through all of that, he came to the point of confessing Christ as his Savior and Lord, 
was baptized, married him. He gave an amazing declaration of the gospel and what God had done in his life at his uh, wedding reception and, and all of that. And then after about four or five years, he ran off with another woman. He changed his email, no way to get in contact with him. And uh, thankfully, his wife is, continues to walk with Christ and is doing well. The other brother uh, came to me because he ended up getting arrested and uh, living with his wife. Not my, they weren't married, a couple kids, and his life was an absolute mess. And he was actually more resistive initially, but he was so desperate that he listened to me, you know? Uh, sometimes that's what it takes. <laughs> and, uh, and so we began to disciple him and teamed up with Ed and Robin, and I mean, they had built a house that was a disaster in their thinking and their behaviors. And so, you know, we would walk through them in some of the stuff, and, and then they'd call because they're about to kill each other. And, uh, and so, you know, you get them on the phone and you say, okay, well, they didn't want me to call, but this is ugly, so I called. And so I'd say, okay, put it on speakerphone. And so I'd say to them, have you guys prayed together? You know what the answer to that was, right? <laughs> no, and we don't want to. I said, well, tough. That's what we're going to do. So, husband, you start, wife, you follow, and then I'll pray. <laughs> That's just discipleship, right? And, and, and then after a while, they start praying together when they get in conflict, and then they stop calling. It's amazing how this deal works. And then there's other stuff that pops up. But, man, they were a mess, and it seems like, man, I've spent hours on the phone with them seemingly every day. Um, but, man, they continued to grow, and, uh, and they're walking with Christ today. They got married. I mean, it's just amazing of what's going on, and now they are passing that on to other people. I could never have guessed, if I had guessed anything, I would have guessed the two brothers would have gone opposite ways. You just cannot figure this thing out, and that's not our job. So, uh, let me give you one more metaphor, and then I'm just going to uh, demonstrate through somebody else the importance of this. In baseball, there's batting averages, right? And so there's batting averages, 250, 100, or whatever. If a baseball player wants to get more hits, no matter what their average is, and they had the freedom to do it, how could they get more hits? get up to bat more often. No matter what your average is, if you bat more often, you'll get more hits, right? That's the way it is with spiritual parenting. How many kids do you want to stand on the day of Christ before the Lord and say, God, you allowed me to have a part in their life? But we're going to have to hang our hearts out there a lot. We're going to have to be faithful to this a lot. And just keep remembering it's all about the day of Christ. It's all about the day of Christ, helping people come to know Christ, helping people grow in Christ. And it will be worth it all. It will be worth it all. I want to ask Dennis Davies to come up. Many of you know Dennis. And um, boy, we're blessed to have him as one of our pastors here. And... Uh, I would just ask him a few questions. Uh, Dennis did not grow up in a Christian home, so he didn't have the advantage of spiritual parenting that would come through a mom and dad. And so tell us what was going on in your life in early 1984. Yeah. Well, uh, as most of you know, my wife was uh, Andy, and uh, we were, uh, like most uh, young couples in the 80s, we were unsaved, and... Uh, totally self-absorbed, uh, materialistic, and driven by a desire to appear to be very successful. Um, I worked and went to school part-time. Andy had her job, an occupation of work, because we needed a lot of money for how much we spent, and so we were a two-wage earner household, and our kids had their occupation in daycare. And uh, Andy and I were absolutely convinced that there would come a time in our life when we would be happy, and that would come when we made more money than we could spend. 
And then what, it, what happened uh, as things began to not go that direction for the two of you? Yeah, well, we, uh, uh, our marriage was in pretty bad shape. Uh, we didn't spend a lot of time together, so we didn't spend much time building a relationship. You can imagine we had lots of bills, so we argued a lot, and we were sure it was each other's fault. Uh, we saw uh, the differences in each other as uh, uh, points where we could point to the other person and say if they were more like us, then everything would be fine. And so we saw our differences as objects to argue over. And uh, about that time, uh, because of, uh, you know, we needed more money, we saw a business opportunity uh, that came along, and we decided to go ahead and uh, jump in and and be involved with this business opportunity. And what we didn't know is that God had a plan for our life as well through that. There was a, not too long after being involved in the business, there was a conference, a weekend conference that we had to go to. And, uh, and of course we went, and as part of this conference, unbeknown to us, there was a non-denominational Christian worship service on Sunday morning. And uh, it wasn't because I wanted to go to church that we went to the service, but I figured I was going to meet a lot of people there, and if this is what it was going to take to be successful, then I was going to go to church. And like I said, we didn't realize at the time. But God used that... Uh, Use that opportunity to bring us both to the Lord. And uh, we both came forward on that, on, that, on that morning. Gave our life to Christ. Amen. So you had spent a lot of years of building according to certain desires and passions and actions. And all of a sudden, God bought you that day. Yeah. And uh, how do you... How do you end up changing from the way you used to be thinking and living to where you are today? Yeah, what's amazing is that at the, point, at the time that this happened, I just thought this is the way it happened for everybody. But I realized, looking back, how blessed Andy and I were at this point in our life. Because on that very day, you know, I don't know how many of you have done an altar call, but you come forward, you go behind a curtain. I mean, this is just a classic altar call, right? So we come forward and go behind the curtain, and, and uh, while we're back there, of course, we're going to receive counseling. And so there are counselors back there uh, giving you a Bible and telling you we're going to go to another room, and people are going to explain to you what the decision you just made is all about. And so it was at that time that uh, an el uh, what we thought was an older couple, they were my age now. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At that time, we thought they were ancient, but... <laughs> But anyway, this elder couple approached us and said, look, we'd like to work with you kids and help you to grow in your relationship with the Lord. And, uh, you know, we had no idea what all that meant. And so uh, we were very excited that these people wanted to work the, with us. But they said, there's, there's a couple of conditions that you have to meet before we'll work with you. And one of them is, is you have to commit that divorce is not an option. And the other is you have to agree that you will do what we ask you to do. And we said, absolutely. We needed a lot of help. And so we had both come from divorce before we met. So we desperately didn't want to go through that again. And uh, so God used even our divorces to reinforce the importance of staying in this relationship. And uh, so we began meeting. Their name was Dan and Jeanette Robinson. We began, began meeting in their home once a week. We did a Bible study, and uh, they gave us personal counsel because every week, like Pat said, there were a lot of things <laughs> we uh, needed help with. And uh, they just stayed with us week after week after week after week. And, uh, yeah, saved our life. Now, the thing about Dan and Jeanette, they weren't perfect. In fact, the thing that attracted us to Dan and Jeanette was that they would share their imperfections with us. They would tell us the struggles that they had as a married couple. And uh, the thing that was really impressive to me is that, just like us, they, they were different people, totally different personality styles. But they had learned to appreciate the differences in each of their lives 
and grow as one together using those as strengths as, as opposed to weaknesses. And also they could laugh about their failures hmm. and Andy and I never could. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dennis. Yeah. Mm. It makes a difference, folks. And there's a lot of Dennis's and Andy's out you that are single, or they're married, or they're single again. You have something to offer them. And I beg you, for the sake of the day that you stand before Christ and for their sake, that you step into this, whomever that might be. Let's pray together. Spirit of the living God, we thank you for the marvelous work that you've done in our lives to get us to the place that we're at. And we thank you for this calling upon our lives to help others. Lord, build into us your heart. Build into us a heart just like you did into the Apostle Paul and into Timothy and into Epaphroditus, into Lydia, into people like you have through the years so that we would prioritize over that day that we stand before you and so will others and that we will keep counting it a joy that you have called us to this great opportunity. And Lord, help us to stay faithful. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.